0: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Total Education Show, the talk shop for teachers, parents, and administrators. Here's your host of the show, Neil Haley, the Total Tutor. Dr. Conrad, are you on the line? I am. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm excited to welcome the program, uh, Dr. Conrad Murray. Uh, formerly Michael Jackson's doctor, about he's going to talk about his book today, This Is It, The Secret Lives of Dr. Conrad Murray and Michael Jackson. So, Dr. Conrad, thanks for stopping by today. Tell me specifically enough why you decided to write the book.
1: Well, I wrote the book for a number of reasons. There were a number of adversities that I encountered, a very, very raw ordeal. And there are a number of things that my children, my mom, and other family members that knew, I wanted to make sure that it's memorialized so that they will always be able to refer to it as part of their history. At the same time, you know, there's a very real story that entangles my life with Michael Jackson. A lot has been said about him throughout his life, and I also wanted to include that as part of my memoir.
0: And and I think that that's, that's definitely important. So tell us specifically how you became a doctor, because I know that's part of the whole memoir, right, telling your story.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, how I became a doctor, well, you know, suddenly I was born uh, in, from very humble beginnings. I never wore shoes until I was seven years old. And, um, you know, very uh, – but I then came to America several years after doing well academically, avoiding substance abuse and – any of those type of things, and I focused my and on my um, institutional uh, training. Became a doctor first at Meharry um, Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, and the Mayo Clinic of, of Rochester, Minnesota. Went on to the University Medical Center where they did the baby baboon heart transplant, and um, became an internist. Went on to the University of Arizona thereafter, became a cardiologist, and finally. At the University of California, San Diego, where I did my subspecialty in interventional cardiology. But during the course of my training, I met a lot of people. I served a lot of um, privileged and underprivileged. I stayed on the Native American Indian reservations, and I did a number of things in medicine, which I am very thankful for that the country gave me that enrichment.
0: And how cha- how much of a change, a culture shock was it to come to the United States and to become a doctor, and just the way you grew up, you said, c- compared to being in the U.S.
1: Oh Well, you know, it was, there are two different things. I, re, I do remember uh, when I first came to America that um, I was given an examination. I remember, I clearly remember that. And I thought I'd made a 100% cold on the exam. But I missed one question. And the first question was, what determines social class in the United States? I had read the question so quickly that when I got to social class, I had stopped, and I just checked education, and I got it wrong, (laughs) because I came from from a British country, and um, education determined our social class. If we worked hard, we studied, we can become almost anything. In the United States, it was just the opposite. Money determined social class. I still cannot believe I, I got that question wrong. It still haunts me up to today. I think we need to change it. That's
0: terrible. You're right, because they they, they look at social class compared to education, and in other countries, education is the most valuable resource, isn't it, Dr. Conrad?
1: I think education is very important for all of us. It's just good for us to be aware of what's happening in our environment. Whether or not we are educated and learned a specific career, and we can translate that into a livelihood, it is just good to have the knowledge because we can help our children, we can help our neighbors and friends, and we can help the world in general.
0: Absolutely, it's, it's 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 something that um, it, it it transforms society. It gives you that motivation because to, to to achieve an education, you have to work hard, and uh, that I mean, hard work will lead to other things, right?
1: I mean, it's crucial. If you went to your bank, for example, today and you started to discuss a loan, and then the number of fiscal th- terms that starts throwing out, you know, at you, wouldn't you want to understand what you're being told? Wouldn't you want to be able to respond appropriately so that you know you're making the right decisions? It's, I mean, education, there's two things about education in my, from my perspective. There's a theoretical aspect, and there's a practical aspect. Though I have had both experiences, I do not know which one supersedes the other. So I don't individuals who have not been to a university but have a great skill should always put themselves to be less than that of those who have had a degree to show that they're educated. Absolutely.
0: Okay, so you went on. You said as a medical doctor, and uh, what was your pra- were you practicing general practice or what, what was your specialty?
1: No, I'm a highly skilled um, specialist. I um, I train physicians to repair the heart, and rather than um, having to cut the chest open—that's my sub-specialization, i will use catheter-based therapy to go in and remove the blockages in the artery. Should it be in the heart? Should it be in the neck, the carotid arteries, the legs? I repair the abdominal either. Wherever there is a blood flow supply in the body, I can restore it.
0: Okay. And how many years till you started practicing on your own? You mean you were with a hospital for how many years till you decided to be more, uh, I guess, independent in ways?
1: Well, I think I did um, postgraduate training for 16 years, and then after, and, uh, I went into private practice after being an associate interventional cardiologist and an associate director to training fellows in San Diego with both um, Scripps and Sharp Medical Center under the auspices of Maurice McBinder. I went into pra- private practice on my own in 1999. Now I did join a group in Nevada, and when I got there after 90 days, I resigned because basically I got into a system where the group that I worked with was like a factory, it was like a mill. It was a matter of test, 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 test for patients. No time spent with the patients. I couldn't do it, so I decided to resign and I was going back. I was going back to California, but on my way to California, all of the patients that I had treated in Nevada decided to say, oh, "Dr. Marino, you know, you're the best doctor we ever had." No doctor ever spent the time, took the care, explained, did this for us. And it was just a matter of just this cry. It fell straight in my heart like a teardrop. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to stay here. So I took about $5,000, went and went into the building, an office space, and I started the practice. I stayed in Nevada, not for just the love of Nevada, but I stayed there because the patients cried out. I wanted to be there for them.
0: And so you stayed in Nevada. And have you worked with any other celebrity clients before that? I know that you can disclose before working with Michael Jackson.
1: Well, I can. I, I wouldn't really disclose the names of anybody, but I've worked with the high, the most highly privileged, to the most underprivileged. And I show you okay. no different. It does not matter who you are. I will give you the ultimate care. Actually, in the book. If you look at the the book, I, have actually, I did mention the name of one person in the book who um, I happen to have made a major decision in treating, and that was um, Mother Teresa. And you guys can oh, read my. that story. It's in the book.
0: Wow. That is, that is amazing. I, I, I'd like to touch upon that. So when you first met her, was that, was that just an unbelievable presence to meet when you treated her?
1: Well, when I, when I made her decisions and decided that she needed certain type of care and, and procedures performed, I had no clue who the woman was. I had no idea. And when the request was made, I was swamped. I was in charge of an entire coronary care unit that night with patients in-house and patients coming through the ER. And I had an ER doctor who I thought was fairly weak. Everybody that came to the hospital, he felt they should be admitted. <clears throat> and, and so the, 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 trove, the, um, the, the amount of patients that was coming through the door for myself and my interns, my medical students, all of whom I was supervising, and being in charge of all of the crisis and the heroics, any code of anybody crashed during the night was almost impossible. But I took the time because here was somebody calling for inter- from an international source, and they needed help. And Mother Teresa made the call because she needed an answer to make a very, very significant decision. But she needed it from a a, a religious institution. I had no idea who she was until I was exhaustedly caught on my couch the next night. When I was um, frying some things on the the fire, I fell asleep. My entire apartment became filled with smoke. And I was awakened with the alarm. Open the windows for the smoke to go out, and then I placed the television on, settled for a cold cut sandwich thereafter, and then the picture came on this, on on CNN, and they were talking about Mother Teresa and what was happening to her and what was done, and I said, hmm, maybe she is somebody <laughs> important. I had no idea. I had I was exhausted. I didn't have a computer of my own, so I wasn't going to Google the woman. But I said. Maybe tomorrow I'll check with my attendant and know if he knows who she might be and what's the story. Well, the book will tell you. When I did explain to my attending physician, his eyes grew large. His breath uh, slowed, His breathing rate slowed because he wanted to be a part of the decision. But the decision I made for Mother Teresa was quite clear and isolated of the attending physician. And uh, maybe that's the way God wanted it. She was very wow. She was very thankful. She, she blessed me. But you're gonna read the story in its entirety.
0: Oh, we definitely we, we want to read the book. You're already getting our interest in that story alone. Uh, with my faith, uh, Doctor Conrad, I uh, am a huge uh, uh, I, I wouldn't say fan, but uh, honoring uh, Mother Teresa and the things that she's done, and that, that's for sure. If you talk about two unbelievable icons in different areas, in the Catholic Church, Mother Teresa, and then the Michael Jackson. So meeting Michael Jackson for the first time, how did that start, and how did you become his doctor?
1: I was asked to see um, a patient who, well, by by a patient, a call came into my office that a reference was made for, for Dr. Murray as the physician of choice to attend to a celebrity children who was sick. Uh, in the environment. I, it was in the middle of the day. My office was, bubb- was, you know, too many patients. I couldn't do anything except that I said, Find another doctor. If not, I can see you at the end of the day. They called back. The choice was they would wait. I said, Fine. At the end of the day, I agreed to go to the residence. I was driving there. I had no idea who I was going to see. Four blocks before I got to the gates, I got another call. Dr. Murray. The person whom you're going to see today is uh, Mr. Michael Jackson. Would you mind signing a non-disclosure agreement? I said, okay, that's fine. When I got to the house, I signed. I, and then I was let in through the door. Thereafter, I met Mr. Jackson.
0: Meaning, so you never knew that this was going to be such a long, long experience working with him, right, when you first met him. You just didn't know what was going to happen, mm-hmm. right? You, just, you thought you were coming to treat him, no, and I'm, you didn't know what was next.
1: I was going to treat the children. I was going to have a follow-up, give an an evaluation and an assessment. After I took care of the three children that evening, just before I left, he asked if I would take a look at him. And I could tell that, you know, he was also um, suffering from the same illness. It was just a little pandemic inside of his household with viral upper respiratory and low-grade fevers, dehydration, lack of appetite. So I took care of, I, I listened to him also and he danced a lot. Michael danced six hours nonstop daily in his theater. That's his exercise. Hi. And if he started at the weight of 130 pounds, you can weigh him at 125 after those six hours. He was about six, anywhere from six to seven pounds. In addition to being sick with a low-grade temperature, he was actually losing more insensible fluid as than he should, so he needed hydration, and I hydrated him with um with a banana bag, which is normal saving you know, on multivitamins. He needed two bags. And I had to put an IV in him in order to do that. And I do remark, he was excited after I did that. He said he had never had an IV that was placed in his arm that was so smooth. He didn't even realize it was in. And um, I guess that may have triggered him to wanting to have more of my medical attention given to him. And finally, you know, he exposed his his self. Like, for example, it's in the book. And you'll read that Michael Jackson had not been cared for. And Michael Jackson, his feet were just horrible. He never showed his feet to anyone anyone before. He wore socks. He had calluses. He danced in pain. He had such deep-created fungus into his flesh that... um, the 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 feet was cracked and 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 cornified and dried and it was amazing. If you pull that his socks off, you can just imagine like the the feet of a corpse that's laid out in the desert and it's dried. You know, I mean, it just was yeah. horrible. I know. I brought. I finally asked him to have a podiatrist come to the house. He wouldn't allow it. Then finally he agreed, maybe once it's not a woman. And I got a guy to come and take a look at his feet, and he did some work. And from there, for the very first time, Michael was able to dance with short toenails, no calluses, no pain. And I I think it was just maybe some naturalness in Michael. He just started trusting me. And over the years, you know, he started to, um, we became very close friends. He would call back and forth. He wouldn't let me, I wouldn't even have a chance to even make an appointment to go by to see him. He wanted to call and see, well, what I was doing after work. He didn't matter who late it was, well, you know, come by. I think I gave him a chance to just, you know, be an adult, talk. You know, cage in a home where the walls become your know, boundaries. It's kind of difficult for a celebrity. They can't just walk out the street like we can. He can't even walk to his yard if he would like to. Somebody has a camera in a tree. Somebody's across the road. So they're this can confined. I may have given him a lot of relief in the sense that he could have a chance to relax and talk, lounging there in his pajamas, you know, sprawling across the couch, looking through magazines. Um, just to... Uh, a naturalness develops in our relationship. But I also became very sympathetic to Michael in a very at the very early stages. I was not at all so engrossed in the fact that he was Michael Jackson and because I met him, great, I met you, but I I treated him like I neutrally would look at all patients, whether you were king or a pauper, I would treat you with the same respect. Yes. But I never judge people, and um, over the years, it became exceedingly close. That there was a trust and a bond that developed, and I've confessed things to Michael that my mother is reading for the very first time. Very painful story, and Michael confessed things to me that he would never share with anyone. So he was able to release these loads. You know, as I told you at the beginning of this interview, I walked for the first seven years of my life with no shoes to go to school. Yes. I have a, uh, on one, on my right feet... Oh, God, yeah, go ahead, finish. Yeah, you were going to ask the question. No, no, no. no
0: I, I, that's okay. This is fascinating. Uh, and and I don't want to okay. give away a lot in the book because I really think I can't wait to read it as well, uh, Dr. Conrad. I just wanted to get the interview as quickly as possible I have this opportunity to chat with you. Looking at what you said about Michael Jackson, how he didn't take care of himself, did he just not trust people? Is that why he didn't take care of his feet and didn't take care of himself, you know, certain things like calluses and things like that? Or is he just, was he obsessed that he just thought, i no. got to keep going based on the family life and stuff?
1: He couldn't trust people. And, you know, everybody pointed fingers at him and they always made comments at him. And you have to say that, let's take his managers, for example. If you have a superstar as your client, he makes you a multimillionaire. He has more than you nonetheless. Would you want to take some interest in him? Would you want to make sure that he's, he's right? You know, Michael Jackson made a lot of money in his life, and he has had an amazing achievement, but he has not had an amazing personal life. No. I looked at Michael, you know, when I looked at his wardrobes, and he had all kinds of costumes and outfits that he can wear. And as the book, will talk about one of the things about how humble he was. The one shoe, I never saw him with anything but that one black loafer that was cuffed and twisted, and there were no so- holds on the soles, but it probably could have been and he just kept wearing the same shoes. I knew he could afford more, but um simple.
0: The simple. Guys. He could he could afford whatever he wanted, but yet he was, he was he was he was a creature of habit in many ways and uh as you said from different people controlling him in his whole life and he wanted to be in control of his life. That was the major part of who he was that he had to suffer through was he never felt he he always felt he wanted to be in control because of so many people controlling him from his dad all the way up to his managers right.
1: Well, there were no rel- there were no um, there were no relationship with he and just about all the members of his family. There was a weak relationship between he and his mother. It's described in the book. We talk about that. He, we talk about his disappointment. We also realize in the book why he uh, chooses other people as a mother figure compared to his actual biological mother. There's, there's a lot of things. The problem with Michael is that he, when he offloaded so much on me, it, 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 he made me extremely sad. But I carried his load much like you say, you know, he's not heavy. He's my brother. I carried his load like that, many a winding road. He is not a bad man. I don't, he never was. He made a mistake by lying to me, not telling me about his drug addiction with Dr. Arnold Klein. But I may have incited that, uh, him to, to make that lie because he knew that I had a pet peeve. I'm not against anyone but I'm really against people that try, don't try to break habits of drug addiction. I don't think people should harm themselves. The body is a host. The better you feel, the healthier you are, the better the quality of life. When people yes. become addicted to things and they go down the road, the wrong road, they harm themselves. And the book will talk to you and tell you about a lot of stories in there, some of those that's related, that affects me, and the reason why I tried to stay away from that kind of, type of things. So Michael knew that I would leave. I would not have a relationship with him or hang around if I knew that about him. And he, he definitely had it totally separated and hidden under the radar. So he
0: hid his drug addiction from you for so long, and then you finally discovered it at one point in time, right?
1: No, no, not until after Michael passed away and the investigations um, came forth, then I realized what a drug addict he was. Now, when we saw what he was doing, well, the drug that, he, that made him habitual um, disorder was Demerol. And he was being fed right. that for no reason from a doctor called Arnold Klein in Beverly Hills. Arnold Klein, interestingly, was a homosexual gay male, and the judge in the case was also homosexual. They were members of what is called the gay mafia from West Los Angeles. The judge refused to allow the doctor to come to trial. But he did make one little mistake. He gave us a glimmer of a little part of his medical records. And if you look at the records, you see Dameron was given to Michael. In the last 60 days of his life, 51 times at Arnold Klein's office. You'll also see that he has given him as much as 975 milligrams of Demerol per day. Now, I'm a doctor, and I'll put that into perspective for you. If you came into the the emergency room today and you had broken bones, I can give you 50 milligrams of that drug, and your pain will be gone, and you will be asleep, 50 milligrams. 975 milligrams a day, that's a lot.
0: It is. It's a, it's a tremendously a lot. Oh gosh. It's a, it's, I mean, when you're you're telling me this story and seeing this, and then you're telling me the story and people have to definitely pick up the book for sure. But it really scary to know that let's go to the charges. And then I, I want everyone to pick up this book because I'm learning so much that I did not know about the story. So basically after he dies, it was pretty much a witch hunt against you because you were good friends with him and you were his personal doctor versus other doctors he's dealt with and things like that that were doing, giving him things that you didn't know, right? Is that pretty much what you're telling us? I,
1: I had no idea what he was doing, suddenly, but, you know, when I found Michael, Michael was um, lifeless. I'm a cardiologist. I ran, in, I ran straight into action and tried to resuscitate him. When you read the book not only would you see moment to moment, breath by breath, but you'll also see the unknown. What happened when paramedics came into that place? They spent 25 minutes. You you were outside crossing your arms, wishing him well. I I was doing the same. But you will see that they basically did nothing. You will see my anger. You will hear my frustration. I am not one to curse, but I had to. And even in the book, as much as I try to hold it back, sometimes I had to be explicit. Um, oh. but you agree, you're gonna to get to the, the book is an emotional roller coaster. I give yeah. you a little glimpse of my life and the things that I've been through. And you will they don't people speculate, they do not know Dr. Murray. They speculate. People speculate about Michael Jackson, they do not know Michael Jackson. But if you really don't want to be ignorant and be held in a corner where people enslave you with headlines that are not accurate, I stand behind every word in that book. You will be able to be there with us. You'll be able to sit with us, eat with us, drink with us, cry with us. See Michael jumping in the back of my car and climbing over the seat so we could take a, 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 a risky drive down the Las Vegas trip and have some Mel entertainment and not be recognized, you will be there with us from moment to moment. If you want to meet me oh my and you want to meet Michael Jackson, yes, I encourage you to read the book. My
0: gosh, uh uh Dr. Maria uh, the, the just the story alone and, and, and you're and and you're already capturing my interest to know about all these things and being charged, that your your heart must have dropped. When you, once you were charged. Right? Just absolutely oh, shocked. Yeah.
1: It was, it, well, yeah, first of all, that was the case. You know, if I drove down the street and I ran over somebody and I knew that and I left the scene and wrong. If I ran down the street and I ran over somebody, but that person needed help and I helped them. That's a different story. In Michael's case, I was not even present when things happened. In Michael's case, the prosecutor stated that I had abandoned Michael Jackson on a propofol infusion that I started at 9 o'clock in the morning till 12 o'clock in the day. Michael Jackson was never started on any propofol infusion. Prosecutors stated by the medical expert that in order for one to stop breathing from propofol, you have to have a minimum brain level of 1.35 micrograms per ml, which is as a concentration of the drug in Michael's brain. Up till today, the coroner's office have not been able to provide a propofol brain level because they couldn't find it. It was not there They've, because there was no drip. They took time and went into the vitreous chamber, which is in the back of the eye, and they were drawn. They extracted just a tiny drop of fluid and found out that that area holds medications very well. They found a concentration of probofol in the back of the eye of 0.04 micrograms per ml, which was 65 times or 65-fold less than any minimal amount of probofol that can get to the brain to cause them to stop breathing. Michael Jackson was not on a proper fall infusion. Everything in the trial was convoluted. It was twisted. Oh. They, brought, oh. they brought equipment that was not evidence. I sat there. And the biggest thing to me that really hurt me so much in the trial, if you just saw me, I, was only, I almost appeared to be stoic in the trial because I wasn't even sure that what was going on it was a surreal moment. It was out of body all the time. And when I saw David Walgreen, the prosecutor, tear open the, all the evidence and alter it in the, in, the, in the middle of the court while the jury was sitting in the box, they interrupted the court, they moved the juror into the juror's room. I went to the courtroom next door to cry, to ball. And then I came back into the, into the room and we were recomposed, only for the prosecutor to go into to make a statement. Saying that the stipulation was correct, that he had altered the evidence, that should have been a mistrial. They were doing a lot of things against me. They harmed me. Yeah, I had, I had. There's so many things in the book, and, and you know, there's also a lot of books things I've left off. You know, I took care of the high and mighty, but I actually took a plane every every month, twice a month, seven thirty-seven, seven forty-seven. And I flew to an underprivileged area in Houston, Texas, that my dad as a physician served there once. These people were a lot of minorities, but they were in America's fourth largest city, and they were overlooked. No one cared for them. 50,000 right. people, 14 square miles. I went there. I opened a practice. I, I lived in a fabulous office. I was paying like $7,000 a month for the office, but I wanted them to feel good about themselves. I wanted them to come in and say, wow, what a great place. And what a standard job this doctor was doing. I did that for them. Wow. I did not make money from it. I supported it. I've made a lot of money in my lifetime, but I've given it away. But despite that, I was moved from my 2,000-square-foot master suite alone. That's my bedroom. To go into a seven feet by five feet cell, I know. For two wow! Years. Oh. On a a metal slab, a two inch form mattress, no pillows. A, it's an aluminum commode, an aluminum sink, an aluminum square spot where I can sit and maybe eat something read my book. And around round aluminum stool, and planted into the earth with a metal pole.
0: So you pretty much went from walking to school with no shoes to back in that same position when you went to jail. Yeah. Wow. Now wh- people got to pick up the book, check all those things out. What's new with you now, especially when they t- they, they uh, took your license, correct? What are you currently doing for our listeners out there?
1: I, um, you know, this uh, I have been supported by parents and very good friends. Um, It's been it's been tough. It's been an ordeal. I am I am licensed to practice internationally. I do have my practice my licenses in Nevada, California, Texas. Uh, suspended in Texas, they revoked it um but at this time, I could apply for reinstatement of my medical licenses. What I do in the meantime though i have a i serve i serve the entire globe I am called now from patients all from everywhere I have patients from israel from india from The United States, different people, they have a lot of major medical issues. They are not happy with their care. They're not happy with their assessment. I get the the records. I review it, and I get in touch with the people. Some of them need major operations, major surgery. Like yesterday, for example, I had about 12 interviews, but even between that time, I went to a, a patient that came from an international source to the University of Miami. I saw the cardiothoracic surgeon with the doctor. I saw the cardiologist with the doctor. I read the echo findings with the doctor. We recommended bypass surgery. They've charged a patient $160,000 for the surgery. Wow. I would not let that happen. So I go to the to the marketing department. I introduce myself as Dr. Murray. I am this patient advocate. And i like to talk about this man who has no insurance, how we can bundle his course to make it uh, affordable. I've been able to reduce that example from 160000 to $31,000 total right. for eight right. days in the hospital, all doctors paid all testing, surgery in and out. After they leave the hospital, I still follow them wherever they are. And I also fly to different states. People have brought me out to their states to look at their records. And I've done that. I don't charge for it. It's just, It's just my humanity. Now, doctor Dr.
0: Murray, when I'm you're 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 trans, you're learning from this experience to serve others more and more, even though you were still doing it practicing as a doctor, you see your passion as a physician to help others and help a lot of others that are in true need. That's what it sounds like to me.
1: Yes. There is no greater gift than giving. There is no greater gift and making yourself available to help when one is in need of that. Wow. You don't need to work for, for for money. Money is a very useful tool in life, but work for fulfillment. That's what counts. Now, i tell you something, too, that you must keep in mind, and for your listeners out there. Many of you are complaining today about how your breakfast tasted this morning or your toast was probably right. overdone. And you think that these are problems and you're complaining about how your boss may have said something to you yesterday. That's the real problem that prevents you from moving forward in life. Don't let that happen. You're speaking to a man this morning who has actually stood up and faced the entire world alone. Would you like to have worn my shoe? Mm -hmm. Do you know what trouble is and the real problem is all relatives. Despite that, I assure you, my goal in life is that I fell, unjustly so. But I get up, I stand, I dust myself off, and I come back. And I will come back greater than before. I determine my destiny, and I want you to determine yours. Do not quit on yourself.
0: Well, I hope you get you get vindicated, uh, Doctor Murray, for all uh, all the, the, the from the story you're telling us and how, and hopefully that happens. But I, you're definitely out there to truly serve others. People need to pick up your book. Where can they purchase your book and learn more about you, Doctor Murray? So they can
1: purchase they can purchase the book on Amazon.com, or they can go directly to my website where they can purchase and also learn more about me and my website is drconradmurray.com it's drconradmurray.com no spaces or they can also buy it on Booktopia As, um, on the next uh, week the paperback copy will be rolled out by Baby um, Book Baby. so you can order now on the website and they all will come to you after about seven days but I hope that if you choose to buy the book read it with an open mind there are Areas of excitement, and there are things that's very, very dark. You know, there are stories of Michael and I, and there there are stories that's that's real. Um, But it's okay. I was able to tell a story about my life. You know, I've lived in my father's house for years, unbeknownst to my mother, who I couldn't tell, and I couldn't even say who I was. I couldn't even identify myself as his son. I have taken yeah. a lot of hits in life for a lot of people, yeah. and but maybe one day, God will bless me, and that's all I can ask.
0: Well, I think that you, from this, hearing more and more about your story than you being the scapegoat for everything, hopefully everything will finally change. You'll be vindicated at one point. Dr. Murray, and also ultimately you'll be able to do what you love, which is practice as a medical doctor. So again, the book is This Is It, The Secret Lives of Dr. Conrad Murray and Michael Jackson, the never-told Stor- story of the King of Pop. I really uh, appreciate you calling, man. Uh, best of luck and everything, and thanks for taking the time this morning to come on the show.
1: All the best to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Goodbye. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to The
0: Celebrity Show, and we'll be... I am. Fantastic. So I'm excited to welcome to the program. We all know him from Dancing with the Stars, but also author of Living with No Excuses, Noah Galway. Noah, thanks for calling, man, and uh, thank you for your service. That's one thing I wanted to thank do first, is well, thank
2: you for your service. Well, I appreciate that, sir. Thank you very much.
0: So take us back to the accident. Because, again, the, probably telling your story would take... More than 20 minutes for sure with all the different things that would take us back to the accident and how it it really changed your life, but you were just providing such great inspiration for so many people. But tell us about what happened.
2: Well, I was on my second deployment to Iraq, and I was driving an armored Humvee. There were three of us in the convoy, and we were driving at night, so we drove with our headlights off and night vision goggles on. And with night vision goggles, you can see well, but you can't see everything. And one thing I didn't see that night was a tripwire that was stretched across the road. And when my front tires of this Humvee hit that tripwire, it detonated a roadside bomb that hit my door, the driver's side door, and threw this nine thousand pound armored Humvee flying through the air and it landed in a canal running adjacent to the road. I don't remember any of it. They said that the vehicle landed wheels down and I was in the water about chest deep. And I had a huge hole in my jaw, and my arm was taken off. And the rest of my body, they couldn't tell because it was in the water. And they were trying to just to assess the situation, get me out of the vehicle, up the embankment, and get me out of there, back to where some medics could work on me, and fly me out to a hospital in a camp outside of Baghdad, Baghdad to Germany, and then Germany to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in D.C. And that's when I woke up days later on Christmas Day. And it, to me, when my, my parents were there, the first things I saw at Walter oh Reed, gosh. and my mom was the one who explained to me that I lost my left arm above the elbow, my left leg above the knee, had some serious injuries to my good leg that was still there, and a couple of injuries on my right hand, and my jaw was shattered, so my mouth was wired shut when I woke up. So it was, it was a lot to take in at one time.
0: What, when you took it in, when you woke up, what were what, what thoughts were passing through your head when, when you woke
2: up? Well, I mean, you know, not to sound like this, this great person, but my immediate thought was, if I'm this bad off, how is everyone else? Because we'd lost a lot of good guys in that deployment already just a couple of months in, and that was my concern. And no one at the hospital had the answer to that. And it wasn't until my platoon leader, Lieutenant Jerry Edson, was able to call me and told me that I was the only one that was severely injured, that we lost no lives that night. And at that moment, that's when everything turned, and I started focusing on myself, and it terrified me. You know, I, I felt like, you know, everything was over. My military career was over. Being, physici- being physical at all was over. I mean, it was it – was, I mean, not – you know, that was one thing that I talk about in my book. I go through – I was, I was ter- very
1: emotional.
0: Noah, that when you, when you were very scared, then the kind of thing, once you got home in the recovery process, tell us about that recovery process of just getting home after the injury and going from there.
2: Well, you know, when I was at the hospital, you know, I was, there was a whole bunch of injured veterans. Everywhere you went around town, people were pretty used to it. Uh, when I got home, when I moved back to Birmingham, Alabama, it was new. This was in 2006 when I moved back to Birmingham, And seeing injured veterans wasn't the norm. So I got a lot of looks, and I felt very uncomfortable. And I was just – it wasn't other people making me feel uncomfortable. I was just uncomfortable with myself. And I entered this stage of denial where I acted like – you know, I tried to act like there was nothing wrong with me, that I was fine. But then I found myself self-medicating with alcohol and drinking all the time, and I – Lied to myself, oh my. was acting like I was just having a good time, I, you know, but I had different people. I would go out with different nights that I could go out and drink and stay out all night. And, it, you know, I was just a very, you know, a bad situation that I was in that I was trying to cope with.
0: Oh, so how did you recover from that? You said you were drinking, you were, you were depressed. You well, were, there, what, were, what, there what were several things. That
2: there were several things that happened, and that's, that's what I covered in the book. You know, I, I kept, In the book, I point out that it, it's not a Hollywood story. It's not this one aha moment. Uh, but the one thing that was a constant focus that I kept coming across was that I wasn't being a very good father. I wasn't being a very good influence for my two boys and my little girl, and I needed to make yes. a change. And that, even though I came across that, it still took a few more times of those ups and downs to finally level off to where I was being a better person, that I was able to take care of myself and my children and be the father I needed to be. And that's, you know, and that's something that I remind myself daily. When I wake up, it's like, okay, you know, what am I going to do today to make sure it's a positive influence on my kids? Or at the end of the night, what have I done that has been good for my kids to show them, you know, to be a good person and if I made the right decisions? You know, it's not something you just do once and you're good. You know, once I realized that, that it was an ongoing uh, challenge that I would face and to make sure to do the best I could do. And, you know, we make mistakes, but to always be learning from those and improving them, that's one thing about my depression and my recovery. I, there was a lot of mistakes I made. I don't regret them. I've learned from them. And I think that's the most important part.
0: When you wanted to start with your, to make your story public and, and go public with your story and tell others, when when did you decide that? Who came up with that idea? Was it you or how did you say, I I want to start inspiring others and do that?
2: Well, you know, I started doing little things. My older sister is a a school teacher. I actually have two sisters that are teachers, but my oldest sister asked me to, you know, just share my story with her class. And I did, and I saw the reaction. Then I went and spoke to adults and then I started getting in contact with other injured veterans or people with disabilities or those who are going through different struggles and I saw that there was a connection, and I felt like it was I needed to share my story, especially when I got back into fitness, started running obstacle course races, marathons, and people were connecting to my story. And I felt like I needed to keep pushing myself, you know, if, if there's others that are, are connecting with my story, that I needed to keep going. Even today, I have people that reach out to me uh, with these incredible stories, and those motivate me to keep going.
0: And that motivation to keep going. So that's, and so that's interesting. So once you started to talk to kids and tell your story, get back in shape, you started inspiring people. And that probably motivated more and more that even through my limitations from my disability, because of the, of the accident, I can bring joy to others and help others that, that have hope, right? That's what you yes, saw that's from
2: exactly the first it. time. You know, I've, I give a lot of speeches and what people don't realize, I have all these people that, that thank me for sharing my story this and that but they don't realize is time I'm on a stage and, and whether it's ten people or a couple of thousand, I I gain so much from that from sharing my story, making those connections that it helps me. Because you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's not this one and done thing yeah. where you're you're out of the woods and you're good. No, it's this is a lifelong thing for all of us. Whether you suffer from A serious injury or not, life is difficult, and and you always have to be finding those positive things that keep you moving, keep moving forward, and that's what I do with my life. Once I accepted the fact, you know what, there's going to be challenges, it's not always going to be easy, but you got to find the good in it, and when I share my story, I get something positive from it, and it keeps me going forward.
0: And that keeping going forward, such a, that's a, such a great thing. And through that process, you start working on all of what you're doing, and then tell us the story of getting connected with Dancing with the Stars. I'm sure you were gaining <laughs> some popularity locally and different things. You were inspiring others, and your story was getting out there. But how did that happen?
2: Well, you know, I was gaining a lot of attention from doing these races. In the race world, I was known. In the fitness world, I was gaining attention. Then I made the cover of Men's Health, the world's largest men's magazine, and then I went on Ellen DeGeneres' show, and it just kept growing. And then after Ellen, the phone started ringing. Survivor asked me to come on their show, which I thought was awesome, but I didn't want to be away from my kids that long, so I turned it down. Another show called Same Situation, Turned It Down. And then Dancing with the Stars called, which I never saw coming, and they asked me if I had any dance experience. I said, not at all. I do not dance. And they said that if I did it, they put me in a house in LA and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do the show. I have three kids here in Alabama. Thanks, but no thanks. And they said, not a problem. Your dancer will come to Birmingham and y'all will rehearse there and fly back and forth. And I kind of felt like crap, I guess I got to do it. And (laughs) I was at a point in my life where I was doing a lot of, you know, not, not only motivational speaking, but personal training. And I was challenging my clients to step out of their comfort zones to push themselves, yeah. and I thought, what's more uncomfortable for me than dancing in front of 15 million people, missing two limbs, and with no dance experience? So I figured, you know, I'll do it, but I only la- I only thought I'd last two or three weeks. I had no idea I would go the entire ten weeks and come in third, and that's all because they they partnered me with Sharna Burgess, this incredible dancer with great great yeah, choreography is. and just hard work, and she made, you know, the the lack of experience look well because of how she was able to do it.
0: And you inspired so many people from, and we'll talk a little about Sharon. I've had, on, had her on my show twice. She's awesome. Uh, but let, let's look, uh, let's look at specifically enough when you talk about uh, being ready, you inspired so many people to see your story and see you move forward to see if you could win, right? You really even picked up so much more steam. Through Dancing with the Stars. I did.
2: That was that was the biggest thing that I'd experienced. I didn't know how big – I'd heard of Dancing with the Stars, but I'd never watched a single episode. I had no idea how large that show was. And I went on thinking I wouldn't last very long. And around week five, when we did Most Memorable Year, and I danced to Toby Keith's American Soldier. And it was yeah. – and and I come up with this great choreography. It was, you know, my injury, my time in service. And we we did this one arm lift that I held her up, and it was just incredible and the reaction from everyone in the studio audience, all the judges gave me a standing ovation. that was amazing day. And the days leading after the people that reached out to me that said that I had motivated, that I inspired them, that they they were thankful that I was sharing my story through dance, it was I mean I was at a point where I was like, you know i don't I don't care how long I last on the show. I wanted that to be a good dance." But after that, I told Sharna, I was like, I don't know how long we're going to last on the show, but we got to be pushing it every week. I suddenly was more ma- motivated than ever. I wanted to make sure that I knew I wasn't the best dancer out there. But if right. people were inspired by what I was doing, I needed to be working hard at what I was able to do.
0: And as I remember, the story got more and more and more and more people were inspired, making phone calls, you keep moving on, and you get to almost the again third place. So you almost won it, and and it, it, it must have blown you away. I thought I'd be only in two or three weeks, and then another <laughs> week, another week, right? Yes, I, I
2: could not believe that I did. I did every dance that season. That's what it, I don't care what place I came in. We did every dance. Sharna was able to tell my story week from week, and you know, and that American Soldier dance that I did. You know, in one week, you got 41 million views on YouTube—the most views in the history of oh Dancing with the Stars—and that was incredible. It was shared by everyone on Facebook. Um, General Odenaro at the time was the chief of staff of the Army. He shared it on his Facebook page. The oh. reaction I got from veterans was—I mean, just astounding. Yeah, I couldn't believe it.
0: And that's 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 the cool thing—is that response you get from vet, veterans for sure. And and again, and you be able to promote very good values about uh, servicemen. And and again, wounded veterans, that's the thing. Everyone forgets about the ones that come home and how they uh, go through so many of those issues, PTSD to injuries. You're inspiring all of them throughout that process.
2: When I started getting veterans and veterans families reaching out to me and thanking me for being a positive image of veterans, I mean, I was taken back. I wasn't expecting that. You know, when when I mentioned that when I got injured and I realized, oh, no, my focus was on myself and, and my military career was over, I mean, the injury itself was bothersome. But I had a career that was taken from me, which felt like overnight, but was in the course of six days of being unconscious. But in one explosion, it was taken away. And that bothered me for years. And now I find myself connected positively to veterans and active duty military and I couldn't be more thankful and appreciative of the way veterans and the military have treated me
0: tremendous so from that you go on you're doing some more projects we'll talk about some of the projects you did but the book every some how why did you write the book I know you wanted to tell your story but I think you really got out of your comfort zone from dancing with the stars and said I got to write a book now right
2: Yes. I, you know, I always want, you know, after my injury and after I got back into fitness, I wanted to do a book, but wasn't, you know, in that place to to take the time or how to do it. And then after Dance of the Stars, I was like, no, this needs to happen now. And one of the things that I wanted to do, I mean, the book covers a lot. You know, it talks about my childhood, how I got in the military, my time in. There's ups and downs. There's humor in it. But one thing that I wanted to make sure was in that book. And the most important part was being very brutal about my depression, uh, the mistakes I made, the emotions I went through. To so not be, you know, uh, stuck on myself and not talk about the fact that there were moments I cried like a baby. I was terrified. I was scared. And I wanted that in there because when I look at it, if it was, you know, a guy got lost an arm and a leg when he got blown up and then he got into running races and he was on the cover of Men's Health and he was on Dancing with Stars well. That doesn't seem very realistic. There's a whole bunch of middle that's left out, and that's what people need to see and experience. Because what I want to come out of this book, you know, whether somebody yes. had a, a physical injury or just have gone through depression, right. that needs to be pointed out, and I want it to connect to somebody. If one person reads this book and sees that they have experienced or going through the same sadness and fears and that they can get help, that they can move forward, there is a light at the end of the tunnel then it's, it was worth everything to have done this
0: book. It's, it's worth its weight gold in so many ways and to inspire so many people. And I look at my faith, Noah, and I see, I see that when I feel down, I feel like overwhelmed with life. I, I look at someone like you and how you're able to inspire people. And say, why should I complain about I'm a little tired or my, I have five kids of my own, Noah, and life is crazy at home or, you know, things are sometimes not going the right place. You look at someone like yourself that's still inspiring so many people, even though what you've gone through in your life, and you're able to help others. Because there's so many people feeling down, depressed, discouraged right now, Noah. They're just so frustrated yes. with their life. And that book right now will hopefully put them in a perspective to understand they they should they should live without any excuses as you put living with no excuses as your title right
2: yes yes and it's you know it's one of those things that you know some a lot of things we worry about in daily life aren't that big you know and you gotta no, you aren't. gotta just you know get through them but then you know it, you know the depression part is to point out that sometimes things are more serious than you may realize, and help is something you may need to get. So it's a, it's a little bit of both things. And with that, with depression, you know, you've know you got to see, pay, seek help. You have to be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to get through this. It's going to be difficult, but I'm going to get through it. And then, like we talked about the other thing, sometimes we all do it. We stress out about something that's not even worth stressing about. Yeah. And it, it can ruin your day if you start that way, and, and everything exactly. just tumbles afterwards and you have to be like you know what you can't help what happens and you got to just make the best of it and i try to teach that to my kids that you know hey sometimes we don't we don't get everything we want but look how great everything else is
0: what happened after dancing with the stars i know you had you were in you were in another show you did some stuff uh are you looking at the acting end of things or entertainment field as well to continue after dancing with the Stars?
2: You know, I've I found that I'm very comfortable with, you know, being out of the public eye. And did American Grit on Fox. John Cena was the host. Me and three other veterans were the mentors for these sixteen competitors that we challenged and pushed. We each we had a team of four. And that was incredible. That felt good. I you know, I was I was back on a TV show, but I was also I was the I was leading a team. I went from, you know, being coached and led by Sharna to being back in my comfort zone of pushing people through physical challenges and it felt incredible. But then also dancing with the stars put my name out there to so many people that never heard my story and I, and my speaking took off. So I've, I've been able to travel all over sharing my story. that's, That's what I do the most of. And I love doing it. I get to meet all these incredible people, go to these great events, and I really enjoy it. And you know, what, you know, holds for the future. There have been different offers that have come out. I'm just, Everything that comes up, you know, I mean, like I said, I, every day I remind myself to, you know, I'm a father first. I think of the kids. Yes. And offers come up that would be great. Money would be incredible. But is it right for the kids? And I, I still do that. Right. And I remind myself to not get wrapped up in what's going on. I love, I love attention. Anybody that knows me personally knows, well, Noah loves attention. And, you know, that's yeah. just who I am. But my kids are priority one. And there's been Absolute. a lot of things that I've turned down because, you know, they weren't bad things, but they just didn't really fit into uh, the world I live in with my three children. And, you know, so there's sometimes I turn things down because I have to remember, you know, I'm a father first.
0: And, and that's great because I, I could be traveling and doing lots of talks all over the country and traveling every weekend or traveling during the weekend because I'm a pretty good speaker and, and you know, talk about education, entertainment, whatever, and inspire people. But, however, to get away, if, you're, if I'm going to be away from my kids at long periods of time, I can't do that to my wife, and I sure know how it's going to hurt the family. And you put family first, and I'm sure putting your schedule. You probably – they travel with you sometimes, right? Because it's your brand. You're going out and doing talks. You're taking them with you, right?
2: It's incredible that they've gotten to travel. I grew up not – I never left – didn't go anywhere. I mean, my dad worked construction. He worked hard, and we just didn't – we didn't go on vacation. We didn't travel. And I get to take my kids to these events. And then we get to go and see things. They've been everywhere from L.A. to New York to Myrtle Beach to Florida to, you know, Turks and Caicos. You know, and it's, and it's been incredible to be able to share those experiences with them. I, don't, I try not to spoil my children. You know, that's easier said than done. But I want to take them on trips. I want them to experience as much as they can. And, and that's right. what I'm trying to do for them. I'm trying to make sure they see that there's a world outside of our own little bubble. And we need to experience it. We need to see it and appreciate everything that's out there. And that is what I've been able to to give them in these last couple of years.
0: Okay. Where can we purchase your book, Noah, and learn more about you? Again, so your website I definitely will be the place where people can ask if you want to come out and talk to to groups of people and things like that. But where can we find your book and learn more about you?
2: Yep. My website, NoahGalloway.com. You can – You know, there's a there's a tab that you can go to to request to see about uh, some speaking. But then there's also there's a link for my book which you can go to Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. You know, you can pre-order it now. Um, It is uh, comes out August 23rd. I just finished last week the audio book, which was much more difficult than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. But it was a great (laughs) experience. You know, I was was glad I got to do it. I wanted to make sure I did my own audio book. Um, But, yeah, the book comes out August 23rd. Uh, You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just look up Noah Galloway. And I I know my Facebook page on the very top has a link for the book as well. Um, And I'm I'm hoping
1: that...
0: 18- plus.